With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang up and listen is sponsored by Bombas. Bombas are athletic leisure socks re-engineered to look better, feel better, and perform better with a mission to help those in need. One pair purchased equals one pair donated. Go to bombas.com slash hang and get a free pair with your order or 20% off. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash hang. Hi, this is Josh Levine and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of January 26th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll talk about the latest developments vis-a-vis that time the Patriots maybe didn't inflate their balls enough. Did they inflate their balls enough? Did they not inflate their balls enough? These are the questions we will probably not answer on today's episode of Did the Patriots Inflate Their Balls Enough? Also, we're going to interview one of four men to take photographs at every Super Bowl, one of the subjects of the new uh, ESPN documentary Keepers of the Streak. We'll speak with American tennis player Tim Smichek, who nearly beat Rafael Nadal at the Australian Open and has been celebrated for a show of sportsmanship in the deciding game of that match. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we will scrutinize Clay Thompson's record-setting 37-point quarter and look at where it ranks among accomplishments by the human race. Joining me in Washington, <laughs> D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, Friday sports correspondent friend Pierre is All Things Considered, After Ball, Last week ranks uh, 1,723,412 and accomplishments by the, the human race. race. Yeah, that's pretty high. It is. That's pretty high. It I've was had much lower ranking after both. <laughs> I can't imagine that that's true. I think they're all kind of clustered right, right in that region, right in that range. Yeah. With us from New York is Mike Pesca, host of Slate's uh, daily podcast, the Just with Mike Pesca. A little disappointed this morning. You might be able to hear it in his voice. We shouldn't actually say what time we're recording. I shouldn't say this morning. Yeah. People think we should be rec- we're recording at all times. It's live. It's live. Or, or when they hear it is when we speak. Is when we're <laughs> speaking. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, you seem a little disappointed at the snow situation for, for a lot of different reasons. 
It's Sonoma appointment. <laughs> you know, they always give you the three feet. I just don't think it's going to be three feet, but no one's brave enough. I'm the only one brave enough who's saying, who's, who's, who's brave enough to say it's not going to be three feet. Who are they? Because then if who's it is this three they, feet. this vast meteorological conspiracy of which you speak? <laughs> the weathermen. Well, there's Stormfield, Mr. G, but mostly the New York Times. <laughs> nah, the New York Post front page. But Mr. G. I miss Mr. G, one. you know? I grew up with Mr. G. Is that a real guy, Stormfield? Yeah, yeah. He was, fr- he was uh, Dr. Frank, doctor, I'll say doctor, doctor, probably an optometrist. Dr. Frank Field's son, Stormfield. And Frank uh, was also now, a meteorologist, so it was, that's a, right. it was a legacy. But Frank you could buy as a meteorologist, because first of all, his name was Frank, not Storm. Second of all, mm-hmm. he wore frumpy suits. Now, Mr. G was from an era, maybe you had, uh, when you were in junior high school, mm-hmm. had some teachers like this, who had a somewhat complicated last name. And back then we thought that last names were unpronounceable to the vast North American viewing or middle school public. So you'd have to just go by G. <laughs> Mr. G. Mr. G. <laughs> no whimsy watch this week. That was a little bit whimsical, what we just uh, discussed with yeah. the weather and whatnot. Mr. G but whimsical. I managed to avoid Pro Bowl results. No spoilers. Please don't tell me about it until just right after I die. Then you can tell me. Um, that'll be the perfect Wait, time. If I told you the name of the team that won, it would still be is totally meaningless to you. Um, that that is I, helpful. If I told you they used 14-foot-wide goalposts and Adam Vinatieri missed three kicks and also 35-yard extra points, of which I Adam thought I Vinatieri was clear. missed I two. Thought, I thought I was very clear. This is about. what's going to happen to football people. Narrower goalposts, 35-yard extra points. Don't, uh, don't say that he Josh, didn't warn you. It, does not want to know until he dies, and now he's a little closer to death. Thank you. <laughs> that is that did help in a way. Um, okay, so this deflated balls thing is still a thing. Um, as a reminder, the Patriots beat the Colts forty-five to seven in the AFC title game. After the game, the NFL said it was investigating New England for using balls that were inflated below the minimum inflation threshold. Later, it was reported that eleven of the twelve balls the Pats had prepared for play were substantially underinflated on Thursday. Bill Belichick had a press conference in which he seemed to lay the whole thing on Tom Brady, saying Tom's personal preferences on his footballs are something that he can talk about in much better detail. Um, later that day, Brady had a press conference in which he said the word balls a lot, as you can hear in this uh, supercut from Deadspin. I pick the balls. Our equipment guys do a great job of breaking the balls. To me, they're perfect. I don't want anyone touching the balls after that. I don't want anyone... Rubbing them, to me, those balls are perfect. Breaking the balls, I choose the balls. I wouldn't want anyone touching those. I would zip those things up and lock them away. Another nature in with with the balls. So whatever feels good that day. Thing, I'm not squeezing the balls. I'm not, you know, I don't. That's not part of my process. I I grab it. I feel the lace. I feel the leather. Um, I feel the tack on the ball. Breaking our own balls. Breaking the balls for all the quarterbacks to have. The balls in play. Some guys like them thin. Some guys like them uh, tacky. Some guys like them brand new. Some guys like old balls. I mean, they're all different. Some guys like old balls. Some guys like old balls. They also know that how I like the balls, and I tell them how great they are before the game. So this is a very serious, you know, topic. Uh, in conclusion, balls. Uh, Brady also said, "I would never do anything outside the rules of play. I would never have anyone do something." Um, then on Saturday, Belichick had another press conference in which he said he's handled dozens of balls over the past week and has determined through science science that the team did nothing wrong and the pressure of the balls dropped due to atmospheric conditions in the stadium that day. Let's listen to a little bit of that. We found that once the balls, the footballs, were on the field over an extended period of time, in other words, they were adjusted to the 
uh, climatic conditions and also the fact that the ball the balls um, you know reached an equilibrium without the rubbing process that after that had you know run its course and, and the footballs had reached an equilibrium that they were down approximately one and a half pounds per square inch. So uh, Mike, you've talked about in the past how sports television is not really prepared to talk about things like the Ray Rice case or, or things where serious matters of life intrude. This was an example of the NFL press not being prepared to talk about something that is not as serious after the Belichick press conference. Let's go back to the uh, ESPN studio where we have all pro Brian Dawkins assess whether Bill Belichick's scientific claims hold water. Science! Heath Evans compares Bill Belichick's use of science to the quote-unquote debate over between evolution and creationism. Um, mm-hmm. Still, Kurt Schilling was unavailable a, for comment. Fill us a little in on Heath Evans' uh, stance on that debate, by the way. He's just asking questions. I mean, okay. it's, just okay. a de- it's just a really interesting That's debate right. for Heath. He does feel that Belichick's offenses are mostly intelligently designed. <laughs> I find the argument totally ridiculous um, that we shouldn't be talking about this. I've, I've been mocking the subject, but, what, you know, this is distracting us from such Super Bowl week headlines as Pete Carroll telling Marshawn Lynch not to grab his crotch. I mean, what else could we or should we be talking about? I find this endlessly fascinating and amusing. I say, you know, more, 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 more. But Mike, what do you, how do you feel about how this is all played out in kind of wave two of ball, ball thing, ball time? This is exactly what the media and the sports media was constituted to cover. I mean, this, they're in their glory. I at first was thinking this is a little like the deer antler gate scandal, but then I thought it was maybe more like the deer Ghazi. Uh, <laughs> then I realized what it was really like was the Anthony Weiner scandal in that you don't have to know much, but everyone gets to say either balls or Weiner, <laughs> and you make a lot of headlines. I think you the point you made was a point that I've been thinking about that I'm kind of glad it happened because it's so much better than the first week of conversation or the second week of conversation, just two weeks of conversation where you realize the Super Bowl, they could get to 70 plays and there's no way they're going to, in those 70 plays, be able to cover all the crap you talked about for two weeks. So if you want to spend one of the weeks on Balgazi, that's fine. Uh, if you want to lead the newscasts with it, NBC Nightly News and CBS Nightly News, that's not fine. But I don't run the NBC Nightly News. I run, I don't even run Hang Up and Listen. So I think it's good that we're talking about it. <laughs> I do think that, I do think that if it was the Atlanta Falcons and it turns out that Matt Ryan's balls were a little bit deflated, almost no one would care. It would be a side note. And even though the it is true that the but that's patriots how news have, works go ahead finish your thought no no i know yeah. it's how news works that's but how news works you know even though it's true that the patriots have a specter around them i do think that the patriots are the only team that you could do this with maybe one of a couple teams where it will get you on a gut level where you have thoughts immediately about the goodness or badness of the characters involved, whereas if it was Andrew Luck, we wouldn't, where if it was Russell Wilson, we wouldn't. There's only maybe the Jets, Cowboys, and Patriots where we have that emotional investment. That's one of the huge things that makes it an ongoing story. But I do also, but bottom line, I think it is a fairly minor equipment violation that should be punished fairly minorly, though I do think the Patriots probably did intentionally deflate the balls. But if they did it intentionally, then they were trying to circumvent the rules. And there is a, 
you know, at the very core, uh, an issue of what are you trying to do? But look, we're talking it, about the very core here, not just the core. No, no, no. We are talking about as <laughs> the core bladder, as the you inner can get, bladder, the inner bladder. The, yeah. yeah. Um, but should should we care? Yeah, I think we should care. I mean, and I, don't I think do that's think a fair question. And I, I don't think it's should we care. It's how much should we care. I think we should care a fair amount. I think for two reasons. One, it does reflect on this organization, which has a history and a history of success and a history of 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 whatever you want to call it, pushing the rules to the limit, cheating. You might call it cheating with the with the with the with the Spygate stuff. I think they only called it that once. Only once. Well, I'm saying there's no been no other cheating per se. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Once. So most. Okay. Of the, so a lot of it is resentment based on the personalities involved, on our perception of Bill Belichick as a coach and our perception of Tom Brady as a quarterback. Right. So yeah, I think we should care. But I think what's it's real to me. What's interesting about it is that it demonstrates in obviously an over the top New York Post balls headline sort of way that just how important equipment is in sports. I mean, this is like a total minor conversation, but. You know, people don't get just how technical the preparation and the sensitivity toward what equipment players use is in all sports. I think we get it now after that, like, 25-minute yes. Belichick we press conference. We get it! <laughs> so comedy equals tragedy plus time, right? I, I've decided that gamesmanship equals cheating plus time mm-hmm. because there have been a lot of stories. Um, there was the Brad Johnson one, the quarterback for the Bucks, talking about how he paid people to prepare the balls for him before that Super mm-hmm. Bowl. There's a great piece in Vice Sports talking about kickers in the pre-K-ball days about the, like, ridiculous stuff that they would do to the balls. I mentioned this last week. I mean, uh, you know, weights, dryers, sandpaper. And it's seen as colorful, right? I mean, I read the story and wasn't like Mitch Berger is a huge cheater who should be well, he was you legendary, know, dr- right? drummed out of football retroactively because he would, you know, rub the he should be barred from the down. Hall of Fame. He should be Mitch Berger. You're mm-hmm. never you're never going to Canton. But the fact that we learn about this in the immediate aftermath of a game, and I think the fact that it's the Patriots, like I I agree with your argument, Mike, that we. That the Patriots are the only team that we would instantly have an opinion about just because of um, Spygate, because of Belichick, because of Brady. It's not true, though, that, um, you know, like the Saints, there was no previous baggage attached to the Saints before the Bounty Gate stuff. And then the baggage was attached to them afterwards. And people were like, this is terrible. How could the team do that? And with the Jets, like with the forming the wall on the sideline, the Sal Lucy thing to try to block kick returners, people got Mm -hmm. pretty pissed about that. Mike Tomlin. Hip checking a guy. Yeah. But he J- cried. He basically cried like a Mark Brunel type at a press conference. Jacoby Jones. Um, what do you make, Stefan, of the statistical analysis of Patriots ball security? Warren Sharp did a piece that we ran on Slate. Um, Brian Burke of Advanced NFL Stats did one um, that shows that after 2007, when at the behest of Tom Brady and Peyton Manning, offensive players were allowed to prepare the balls they use after that season, the number of fumbles for the Patriots just dropped off a cliff, especially compared to other teams that play outdoors. They're just like several standard deviations ahead of everyone in terms of ability to hang on to the ball. Does that 
strike you as strong evidence that well, they're, it strikes they're me doctoring as, as circum- circumstantial evidence. Um, I who knows? I mean, maybe as Belichick said, that is it is something they practice a lot. They also cut running backs, like they change their socks. So there is a, a, a fear inside a Belichick team. That I don't buy that part because every, from... every coach hates fumbles. I sure. don't think that Belichick hates fumbles several standard deviations more he, than he other He preaches coaches. ball security. Other teams merely endorse ball <laughs> security. He preaches right. it. One of the like underrated, hilarious <laughs> things about those stats are the, is that Washington has several standard deviations on the other side. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like Washington. Dan Snyder is like, we need to fumble. We need to fumble more. Fumble. Yeah. Fumble. I think that there's reasonable doubt, though, and I think that I don't know what if that was Belichick's intention. But at this point, it's like Adnan could have been, you know, at the library. Like, we don't really know. And I think that it would be hard for the NFL. And I think Belichick was doing this implicitly and a little bit explicitly. That's like you can really prove that we did this and that we had intent. I, I completely think that this was Bruce Arthur did a column about this in, in whichever Canadian newspaper he writes for now. Uh, but it's a good one because he's in it. This had to be. I mean, I think the, the most plausible fantasy explanation for this is that Tommy from Quincy, the ball boy for Tom Brady, overheard him one day on the field saying, oh, I really like the balls when they're a little bit softer and took it upon himself. This is plausible. This is plausible. To me, this is completely (laughs) plausible. And the 16-year-old ball boy took it upon himself to let a little bit of air out of the balls because that's how Tommy likes it. And I want to be friends with Tommy. So I think that's plausible. Sure. I think anything is plausible. plausible. Well, then what is plausible? (laughs) Atmospheric pressure is plausible, I guess. So The fact that referees probably never check or really notice during the game, that's plausible too. We got to check the cell towers in case DeQuell Jackson actually (laughs) butt-dialed someone. So the the thing that makes the Patriots' story harder to believe is the fact that the Colts' balls were measured and nothing happened to them. But, you know, the Boston Globe, that rag interviewed like four Boston area science, science professors and said, like, yeah, but the, from the Boston area, not on. exactly a hotbed of learning. Um, and they, MIT they were like something? Belichick's explanation makes sense, or at least it's plausible. And so were if there's a range be- from 12 and a half to 13 and a half PSI, the Patriots one is on the low. They turn their balls in on the lower range. The Colts turn theirs in at the higher Max. range. I'm saying Adnan could have been in the, library. been in the library. That is all I'm saying. He could have been in the library. But were any of those experts named the expert guy? <laughs> the insider? The expert insider? <laughs> yeah. The the deflation guy? Because I know a science guy, a bow-tied science guy who disagrees. But really, 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 this is week seven. It's pretty much been proved that the Cincinnati Bengals did it. What's the fine? What's the penalty? Don't do it again. Yeah, pretty much. So... And yeah, I mean, there's and just because you t- just because you catch them in a big game or just because you catch them once and show that there's a series of doing it. This is the first time that they've they've not even been caught. But let's say, you know, it all adds up in your mind to them having done it. 
What's the real world not, I hate that guy who wears a hoodie, I hate that guy who's married to a model, These this guy's in too many uh, Super Bowls. What's the real fine for the Jacksonville Jack? All right, let's pick a team that can plausibly win something ever. What's the real fine for the Chicago Bears having deflated the balls a little? We found out about it in week nine. There's n- it's it's $50,000. Well, well, you're adding another Basically variable. Enough. I think the fact that it was in the championship game, no matter what team it was, would have made it a scandal. And I think the Patriots are getting off a little bit easier given the fact that they won 45 to 7 and that it was 28 to nothing after halftime when they weren't what using those balls anymore. If it was a closer mm-hmm. game, then, you know, can you imagine how many science guys and uh, how many press conferences we would have had? I think the NFL needs to have an independent physicist on the sidelines for all games going forward. I think that's a lot more plausible than the Tommy from Quincy thing that you just talked about. All right, that's it. Isn't it true, Coach Belichick? (laughs) Isn't it true that you didn't know the PSI? We've solved a lot here. Uh, (laughs) You know, we could have really been talking about the outfit that the Spanish language television broadcaster was wearing a media day. This is just a distraction. We need to move on. I think they should do it for the Super Bowl. Can they do it for the Super Bowl, Mike? Can they deflate their balls? I had Seattle should deflate their balls, but go ahead. (laughs) I had my how to talk to your kids talk, and I played some of that on the gist, and Milo wondered that, and I said no, because everyone will be watching. But then he had a great suggestion about punishment. In the Super Bowl, all the Patriots' points are worth half. Huh? (laughs) That would really mess with the Vegas betting lines with the... Would somebody be favored by a quarter of a point? Can we talk about the Vegas betting lines for a second? So one of the big things, one of the big dispositive things is that that came out was, you know, in bad weather games, they're whatever they are, 16 and four against the spread. And this really shows that they have this advantage because, you know, Vegas, they they price all this in. Vegas is wise. It's not just if they won, if they won with all the expertise. Wait a minute. If they were so good against the spread in bad weather games, why didn't the spread reflect that? Wouldn't every, you know, sharp guy in Vegas, I guess not, every sharp guy say, this team's great against the spread. We always got to put our money on them, thus affecting the spread. Again, I guess not. How do you talk to your kids about Vegas not being infallible? About sports books not really setting the line properly? That is... That is a scary thought. I talk to my kids, Johnny Buckets and Vig. I tell Vig, I tell them. (laughs) All right, let's move on. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, athletic leisure socks, re-engineered to look better, feel better, and perform better. I wear socks every day. That's just my thing. Uh, Don't judge me. I like socks. Um, The days where I'm wearing Bombas are happier days for my feet and my toes and my general lower leg area. The socks do not slip. They're made from super comfortable, long, staple Peruvian Pima cotton. They don't have that irritating seam in the toe because every pair of Bombas socks is sewn together by hand. And to go along with all of that, Bombas has a social conscience. Socks are the number one most requested clothing items at homeless shelters, which is why Bombas donates a pair for each pair that you buy. That's more than 150,000 pairs to those in need since October 2013. Go to bombus.com slash hang, and you can get a free pair of socks with your order, or you can get 20% off. Again, go to bombus.com slash hang, get yourself a pair or buy one as a gift. And for each one you buy, Bombus will donate socks to those in need. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash hang. On Friday, ESPN and NFL Films debuted a new documentary called Keepers of the Streak, directed by photographer Neil Leifer. The hour-long film focuses on the four men, Mickey Palmer, Walter Yost, 
Tony Tomsick and John Beaver, who've taken pictures at every Super Bowl. We're joined today by John Beaver, who covered Super Bowl one between the Packers and Chiefs as a 15-year-old. Beaver's uh, Super Bowl photographs have been on four Sports Illustrated covers, and his pictures have been on more than 130 SI covers overall. On Sunday, he'll be in Glendale, Arizona, to cover his 49th consecutive Super Bowl. He'll be shooting for Sports Illustrated. John, thank you for being with us. Sure, happy to be here. And this is a really fun movie, and one that shows the evolution of both sports photography and of the NFL. And you've been around for um, you know f- that whole period. And your dad, Vernon, was the longtime photographer for the Green Bay Packers. Yes, he was. He was, uh, for 60 years, a team photographer of the Packers. He started 60 years? 60, 60 years? years. He <laughs> wow. started when Curly Lambeau was coach. Uh, he photographed Don Hudson all the way up through the Lombardi years. And that's when I hooked on. <laughs> uh, uh, late, later in the Lombardi years, mid-60s, um, as a 15-year-old, covered my first Super Bowl, and I was lucky enough to have you know, my father get a credential for me and give me cameras to use, and I, I guess I picked it up quick enough that I was able to actually shoot some decent pictures at that early age. Now, that first Super Bowl is wonderful, and this is one of my favorite scenes in the film. I mean, you, people forget, people look at the Super Bowl today and think, oh, it must have always been that way. But this was, like, sparsely attended. It was in the Los Angeles Coliseum, 80,000 seats. If it was half full, that was a lot. There were only a handful of you shooting the game. It wasn't like you had to bump into anyone on the sidelines. What was it like? Yeah, no, it was uh, It was actually, I, I think, the championship games back then, the uh, you know, the ones that de- determined the NFL champion had more people on the sidelines. This was kind of a novelty thing. It was, I think the whole game concept came up very late, and it was like sprung at the last moment. It was very wide open. It was easy to work the sidelines. Um, in fact, it was, uh, interesting enough, for Super Bowl, um, it's like m- movie stars and actors and so on would be on the sidelines. I, I, at one point, I was next to Bob Hope. It was like, that would never happen today. You know, we're just a... Uh, uh, a Hollywood personality would show up and just, you know, tap you on the shoulder and say, how's it going? It's like totally different. So I get all that and I get that the Coliseum was a third empty and it was a novelty. But as a kid, were you pinching yourself because it was a big game? Because people would be paying attention because you just love the teams? I mean, it was on the one hand, we hear that it was this bit of an afterthought. It was covered by two networks. On the other hand, you know, Max McGee did make the cover of Sports Illustrated. So it was the biggest sporting event of at least the week, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, it wasn't um, in fact, talking to Walter, and I don't think this got in the magazine, Sports Illustrated only sent two photographers to that game, which is unheard of. Um, Big sporting events like the Super Bowl this year will send 12 people to. So they didn't even consider, I guess, a huge deal. They put it on the cover, sure, but that was mostly because it was, you know, the Packers, and the Packers were selling magazines back then. So you shot that first game in black and white, right? Mm-hmm. And just talk to because one of the cool things about the uh, documentary is you talk about the technical aspects of getting a good photo of a football action shot, um, especially in a scenario where there are a bunch of other guys on the sideline and you might be screened out by an official or something. And um, one of the most interesting parts was you talking about getting a shot of John Taylor catching the winning touchdown in that Super Bowl Mm -hmm. against the Bengals. Um, Maybe you can describe that 
moment, and that was kind of one of your great Super Bowl photographic accomplishments. Yeah, you know, the thing is, it's not a great photo. Uh, today would be an easy picture to get. Back then, we were using very difficult-to-use cameras. And what separated the men from the boys in photography back then was who could follow focus, who could, who could you know, jump to a point and have that point sharp. While you're swinging to that point, you had to kind of focus as you went. It was, it was very difficult. And we were using a... Uh, a lens, a 300-millimeter F2 lens, which had a depth of focus, a depth of field of about two inches. So you had to be very, very precise in your focus. And it was a quick pass over the middle to John Taylor, and um, I just swung over there, happened to catch it in, in focus. And like I said in the, in the, uh, in the uh, piece, um, I was told by the editors later I was the only one to get that picture because of all the difficult equipment and, and the quickness of the pass and all on, so, so on. So that was one of my favorites for that reason. It would take a photographer to understand why that's a, fo- a favorite, but um, that, it was. What makes a good Super Bowl picture? I've always said the best sports pictures are the ones that show the biggest play with the most emotion on the, on the, on the athletes' faces, and that's what I was always looking for. The combination of those two, uh, the human element as well as the historical element of the play, are, are what makes the best pictures, and I think that's, that's probably the case. Now, there are exceptions to that. For instance, did David Tyree catch had no faces shown. It was just backs of helmets and the ball uh, clutching Tyree's helmet. And uh, so there are exceptions, but I think the general rule is big play, a lot of emotion in the faces, and that's the best for me. And you missed the Tyree catch because the ref was directly standing in front, in front of, of you. Yeah, directly in front of me. It's like he, he came, I was in that corner of the end zone, and he, he must have been the back judge or whatever, and he was like, you know, five yards in front of me, directly blocking me on the play. And it's like, those things happen, and that's why we send 12 photographers to the game at, at Sports Illustrated. From your perspective, is it better to have one of these Super Bowls where it really does come down to a big play? You've got to get San Antonio Holmes or you've got to get the Tyree catch because then there, you, know, you might be screened or there's just a limited amount of time to get it, maybe uh, even less artistry involved because it's just it's basically there's this one moment that you have to get, whereas if you're talking about a blowout, there are many, many chances and many different ways to tell the story. I think of Joe Jurevicious as the guy who was on the cover when the Bucks won. So which kind of Super Bowl that do you was, like? That was John Schott, by the way. Yeah. yeah, that was our first uh, digital Sports Illustrated cover uh, of the Super Bowl. I think that was 37. Mm-hmm. Tampa beat mm-hmm. Oakland. To your question, um, you know, in blowouts, I, my mind tends to wander, and you just aren't, you don't stay in the game. Um, Close games, you really stay alert the whole game, and those are the ones that people remember more too. I mean, people are asking me what are the what are your favorite Super Bowls, for instance, and I say the ones that are closest at the end because the blowout games um, people tend to forget about. So you got that shot of Santonio Holmes that Mike alluded to. You were 110 yards away with a digital camera, and it's an it looks like you're right standing in the end zone. Yeah, it's incredible with this equipment these days, uh, especially with digital. You know, we don't use film. We use digital cards now. It's amazing what you can do with those and blowing them up. But that was a 600-millimeter lens shot from the other, the back of the other end zone. So that's more than 110 yards. And um, So do you feel like you've lost your advantage as a photographer? Like if you were the only guy who was able to get the John Taylor shot and now with technology and the fact that you don't have to necessarily be in the right place at the right time and have the hand-eye focus coordination does it take less skill is is you know somebody yeah, like I don't know you if it takes less skill but i think i think it it like i say it uh more people can do it now so let's just let's just put it that way and um 
there's probably some advantage lost, although, at, you know, at 63 now, which I am, um, my eyes aren't as good as they used to be. And when I was 15, I was able to focus, like, quick. And um, up until uh, through the autofocus equipment, which is, it's all autofocus equipment now. Back then it wasn't. Uh, you really had to have sharp eyes and, you know, eye coordination. So it's easier to get a picture now. Let's just put it that way. The One of the most interesting parts of the film for me was when you all discuss how the Super Bowl has changed and how it's changed photography for you. The And I'll let you do this, but the, the most dramatic shift seems to be from your perspective, the move from day games to night games and the move from always outdoor Super Bowls to, to indoor ones, plus the issue of access and the hugeness of the game. Can you, can you describe from a photographic perspective how it's changed and how that impacts what you guys do? Yeah, you know, the, the stadium, the, the clouds, the sky, the, the lights. Uh, and there are lights on, of course, but the setting used to used to make a big effect on uh, on pictures, and they really add to the drama of pictures. That's pretty much gone now because you have night games, you have dome stadiums. It's pretty antiseptic looking. Um, and I think Walter made the point, and he, his picture was a good example of that. The first Super Bowl at the um, at the Coliseum in L.A., uh, he had a wide picture of the I think the teams huddling with this massive columns of the Coliseum in the background and. You wouldn't get that now. And I mean, these wonderful, be, ominous clouds over the or behind them too. They, yeah, there were clouds. Yeah, in the sky, no, yeah. I mean all that added to the picture, and that's a lot of that is gone now. So um, that part really, really was important, and it's too bad it's gone. So as we talk about the changes in the games, do you break it down into era? Has it been gradually ratcheting it up? More photographers, more uh, more glitz, less human element? Or were there specific Super Bowls where you said, wow, now everything's different from what it used to be? It was gradual. You know, as more and more the, the spectacle of the game, the pregame, the halftime show, all that, um, you know, it used to be up with people. That used to be the entertainment. I know. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, you know, and I'm a, I'm a football purist, always have been, because I've you know, been on the sidelines with my dad, for instance, and later on for like 45 years, so I probably shot a 1,000 games, uh, college and pro. The game is the thing to me. Once the game starts, that's the important part. Because, um, you know, Sports Illustrated was always asking me, well, did you get the halftime show? No, I didn't. I shot the football game, you know, and that's part that I that I really like. Last week we spoke with uh, Fred Godelli who uh, is will be the uh, producer of NBC show. We talked a lot about instant replay and I was thinking the reason that we go to TV instant replay is it's right there. It's in front of our face. We think it tells the picture but of course still photographers would often be able to fill in a lot of gaps. In fact I bet there have been instances where your photographs have had the answer to an instant replay challenge that was left um, ambiguous ambiguous do you if it was possible would you want your photographs to influence the outcome of the game if justice could be served yeah but i'm, I'm pretty sure the uh, the way tv covers it these days with their you know with their all their cameras that from every angle and the fact that it's moving you know it's like still photographs can be misleading too from just by the angle or or whatever so i i don't think that's ever going to happen there's that one play in the uh, when when st louis beat Tennessee, where the the, the uh, receivers ended up like one foot short of the goal line and would have won mm-hmm. the game or tied mm-hmm. the game. Um, I had that picture, and the magazine ran it. It showed them just being short of the goal line. So that you know that was one instance where I'm not sure if TV had that, but I, the, the still picture showed it. But you got to be careful with still pictures; they can be very misleading. 
And you have to also be careful that somebody doesn't try to manipulate it somehow, too, because that's easy enough to do these days with still photos. They could, they could deflate it. You know, they could... They could <laughs> deflate, they could. good. <laughs> um, what's your favorite football photo that you've ever taken? Wow, that's tough. Well, as a 16-year-old, I was able to shoot uh, with my father at Green Bay at the Ice Bowl, and I had kind of a picture that the Packers uh, called the iconic picture of their... Super Bowl or their championship era, uh, Bart Starr sneaking in, into the end zone front, uh, at the goal line to beat Dallas in the Ice Bowl. Wait, was that was your photo? A, I was there with a semi-pro camera starting out. I was 16. Um, I, had a, I had a cheap, you know, offbeat lens and uh, uh, made that picture. My father was overshooting Vince Lombardi at the time, and he said, why don't you shoot the action and I'll shoot Lombardi? So here I am, a 16-year-old, and got the picture, and it's, it's kind of lived on. And the Packers use it all the time. I have to say I detected a sense of wistfulness among you guys in the documentary uh, about how the uh, the Super Bowl used to be and how it's changed. It, it didn't feel like a, a ringing endorsement of the NFL's um, <laughs> business approach over the last four decades. Yeah, I guess that's probably true. Like we were saying with the, the settings and the out, outdoor sunshine, I mean, Walter made the point that a couple of his, his pictures couldn't be made today. Um, the one of Len Dawson greeting... Um, the coach in Kansas City walking off the field with the dramatic clouds and, the, and everything. That was a day game. That added that. Uh, it was one from the, like I mentioned earlier, the Coliseum. The bright sun, we were able to use equipment that showed the color better, um, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I guess in, in, in a technical photography aspect, as well as crowded sidelines, I think that point was made, too, that you're basically stuck in a, a spot these days because there's so many people and you can't really move. And... Um, Walter made a good point that everybody you talk to, every photographer you talk to after the game said, I got nothing, because you're so used to being able to move and cover every portion of the game. And this, in, in this instance, you're stuck in a spot. You cover that spot. If touchdowns aren't made in that corner, you know, you pack up, go home, and you have nothing. Well, Walter, so, Walter doesn't even bother going to the sidelines anymore, he says in the film. He, he shoots the game from the stands now. Yeah, he just, he just, couldn't, uh, he just couldn't handle all, all the crowds on the sidelines, plus... You know, he had such a reputation over the years. Everybody wanted to be next to Walter on the sidelines, and it's like a, a mob would follow, follow him around. He's such an icon in the, in the photography, still photography business that um, you know, he was drawing crowds, and it was getting in the way of his work. So um, he's, he's preferring being up. He can, I guess, see a little better. But, you know, Tony, uh, Mickey, and I have been on the sidelines for every Super Bowl, um, so I think we, we want to keep doing that, just be on the sidelines at least through the first 50. That's hilarious that people think that if you stand next to Walter Yes, you'll just be able to take yeah. the exact same picture that he does. It's not even close to being true. <laughs> it's like if I stood in the pocket next to Tom Brady, I could win the Super Bowl, too. <laughs> um, so sport, there was news last week that um, Sports Illustrated laid off staff photographers, and um, mm-hmm. but you said that there's going to be more, you know, there's going to be 12, they're going to be for Sports Illustrated, and the uh, shooting and that they're going to be more there than ever. So it's harder to maybe have these kind of staff positions, but more photographers out there mm-hmm. um, than ever. Um, and so, you know, you're planning on continuing to do this, right? At least through Super Bowl 50? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, eight years younger, starting at 15. I'm only 63 now. So I hope they can do a few more. Uh, I know, I know the other guys, I believe Tony's the oldest and he's, you know, and Mickey, they're determined to make 50. That's their, that's what they're aiming for. For me, I don't see any reason why I can't go past 50. 
and Walter the same way. And they give you those cool plaques when every every yeah. like five. Yeah, so you gotta you gotta like try to accrue more plaques <laughs> than all the other guys. Yeah. Yeah, I know. That's I guess that's important. I don't know. <laughs> But, but the, the back back to Josh's point, I, mean, I don't want to put you on the spot, but the, mm. the the nature of journalism has changed and the nature of the business has changed. And, and I, I gather that Sports Illustrated getting rid of its entire staff of photographers is a reflection of the way the way that business has gone, too. And I don't think people really recognize that when they think about how you know newspapers have cut back and magazines have cut back. But photography is affected that way, too, right? Yeah. You know, it's so ironic that this film would come out the same week that SI is cutting their, cutting their staff photographers. This film celebrates photography, and and Sports Illustrated cutting their photographers doesn't. So um, it was, it's very ironic that there's two extremes here. You know, the thing is, like I mentioned, we have so many more photographers there um, that I guess you can always get a picture if you want it. You don't have to have a staff photographer shooting it. And uh, I guess that was the point of it. It's it's very sad. I was very sad to hear that. It's not unexpected. I mean, none of the six staff photographers that were laid off didn't know it was coming. It was just, you know, the bean counters eventually catch up with you, and that's what happened. Yeah, but as you said, like, there, you know, that's not like there's going to not be photography in Sports Illustrated anymore. I think, like, the easy joke was like, oh, they're just going to, like, take, have athletes take selfies or something, but it's, it's just the economics of the news business. And, yeah, um, you know, much. even if there aren't folks on staff, there's still going to be lots of people on the sidelines that, at the Super Bowl, competing. There'll probably be more now because everybody will want to get his picture in Sports <laughs> Illustrated. Yeah, so the, ne- the next airing of the documentary is Thursday night, January 29th, 7 p.m. Eastern. It's on ESPN2. It's called Keepers of the Streak. Um, you can see John in the movie and see some of the photographs. Podcasting is a great medium to just discuss great photographs. <laughs> it's just really visual. You can really picture them <laughs> in your mind. But the other, Yeah, let your mind wander, and uh, yeah. I guess that's the way. But you're a great photographer, and it was great um, getting insight from somebody who's been to 48 and now going on 49 Super Bowls. Um, thank you, John. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, before we move along, just a note that uh, Mike won't be with us for this next interview, but don't worry, he will be back for the after balls. Um, now, my understanding of science is that everything is reversed in the Southern Hemisphere. But I was still shocked by what I saw in the Australian Open last week. Tim Smichak, who's 27 years old from Milwaukee, is ranked number 111 in the world. He's won 23 total matches at the top level of professional tennis. Rafael Nadal, who is 28 and from Mallorca, is currently ranked number three and has won 706 matches, 64 titles, and 14 Grand Slams. Because he's from Mallorca. It is. It, a little bit outside Milwaukee. Um, in the second round of the Aussie Open, Smichek, uh, though, was taking it to Nadal, pounding serves, winners, putting the Spaniard on the defensive. But at the very end, Nadal finally pulled the match out in five sets, 6-2, 3-6, 6-7, More than that uh, scoreline, what everyone was talking about after the match was a gesture of sportsmanship in the final game when a fan shouted during Nadal's first serve, the ball went out, but rather than let that stand, Smichek told Nadal to take the serve again. Nadal won the point, and a few points later, he won the decisive game. Here is what Nadal said about that in his on-court interview after the match. Just first of all, I want to congratulate Tim because he's a, a really gentleman. What he did in the last game is... Uh, not a lot of people will do something like this in the 6-5 in the 5th, so after four hours... So just congratulate him for that and because he played, uh, I think, a great match.
Okay, we are joined now by Tim Smichak, who's back in Tampa after the Australian Open. How are you doing, Tim? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. And before we get to the sportsmanship, um, first, the match was just amazing as a fan, as a spectator. Um, it was one of the best matches at the Australian Open so far, and it was just a very surprising result. When I looked on my phone to see scores from the Australian Open when I woke up at 6.30 that morning, I was not expecting to see Smichak Nadal on serve in the fifth set. Um, so <laughs> can you um, just walk us through your experience of that match? Like, What are the memories that come back now about a week later? Yes, thank you. It was, um, it was, it was certainly a lot of fun. I guess going into the match, my goal uh, was to not get embarrassed. <laughs> I, um, I was um, not playing very good tennis uh, leading up to that. I was really, really struggling and, and um, working on some things in my game, and uh, just really not feeling comfortable on the court. And so after I won my first round match, uh, I was sitting down with my coach, and and I said to him, "You know, this this <laughs> this next one could be." This could be a bloodbath. <laughs> um, so yeah, I kind of made peace with that, and, and by the time I walked out on the court, I was just in a, in a really good state of mind, and, and um, I resolved to just get the most out of it and really enjoy it. So when so when you win the third set in the tiebreak, that was just a an amazing show of tennis. There, you're up two sets to one. Nadal is not feeling well. You can tell from the other side of the court, as we could tell on TV, that the guy is struggling. Um, every tennis player that you talk to will say, you stay in the moment, you play from point to point. But at that time, when you're up two sets to one, you see the you know one of the greatest players in tennis history just really struggling on the other side. What are you thinking at that point? I told uh, some reporters before the match that you know, if, if I didn't think that there was any chance at all that I could win the match, that I shouldn't waste everybody's time walking on the court. So, you know, going into the match, I, I believed there was, um, you know, I, I, had, I had a prayer. Um, but at that moment, when I went up two sets to one, you know, I started to have a little more belief in myself. But at the same time, it's uh, it's rough on the doll, and I and I knew that by no means was I. Uh, close to win. <laughs> <laughs> but are you are you thinking is it factoring in your in your head that that Rafa Nadal looks like he's not doing so good he looks like he's sick or cramping or something's wrong um that yeah, hey yeah, I can I mean, take advantage was, of this or this is my opportunity yeah it was it was pretty um it was pretty apparent early on that he that he wasn't quite himself um so you know I, I just tried to put my head down and and uh keep working away and luckily, I you know I I, I can um, I can say I, I didn't give him the match. I, I didn't you know he 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 came back and took it from me, which is uh, you know why he's one of the best. And um, you know I can I can hold my head up high because I I sustained a very high level for you know for over four hours, um, and that's um, that's one of the biggest uh, positives I uh, I can take from that match. Yeah, it's great that you can say that because as somebody who watched the match, the fact that at the very end, after more than four hours, he won by the slimmest of margins. It certainly doesn't take away from what you accomplished, but sports is a very black and white, and you had zero wins and one loss in that match, just as you would have if you got, you know, triple bageled. Um, but yeah. do you take, I mean, you said that you take the positives 
away from it. But when you're looking back on that, do you feel like you're going to think of it as a huge missed opportunity? Or are you going to think of it as the greatest potentially moment of your career? Well, yeah, you know, it would <laughs> be um, a little disappointing if, um, you know, the, the best moment of my career actually came in a loss. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, as of right now, that's, that's how I'm taking it. It was it was really an amazing uh, experience, amazing atmosphere, um, you know, to play one of the greatest players of all time and to really go toe-to-toe with him. You know, that was, that was really special. So I do... Um, I do have to take positives away from it, and uh, you know, maybe uh, in a couple of days, when it's not so fresh, I'll, I'll go back and uh, and rewatch the match, and and you know, just try and study uh, study why, not only why I lost, but also the things I was doing to play well. All right, now let's talk about the the fifth set and the the point in question. The so, incident. The incident. Uh, so Rafa tosses it up. Some guy screams. Can you make out what he screamed? Could you? Can you tell when you're on the court what fans are shouting? Are you that? Are you that locked into to just focusing on the ball? Sometimes, sometimes you can tell. I, he he wasn't very clear, but he mm-hmm. was very loud. It was very loud, right? So you obviously yeah. were aware that it was very loud. Rafa, it went long, right? You're right. The serve yeah. went long, and so just walk us through what happened. Well, so he, you know, he's up to the glove and, and he threw up the ball to serve, and um, kind of right before he hit it, uh, somebody in the, in the stands uh, shouted really loud, and it seemed to me that uh, that Rafa almost tried to like stop his swing or, or keep from serving, um, but just wasn't able to to stop in time, and he missed uh, he missed the serve about <laughs> four or five feet, which you know he hadn't done all night. So it was clear to you that it was influenced by what happened, by the by the yeah, by his, his that his attention was distracted. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I tried to think, um, you know, what what he might do or what I might uh, appreciate my opponent doing had that happen to me, and you know, I was just uh, didn't really think much of it. That uh, was the thing to do. So there was a huge variance in the conversation about this after the match. You said. And I'm sure you believe that Nadal probably would have done the same thing for you. And it, and you said it was a clear call, just like you just told us, that it was so blatant, so obvious. He missed the shot by so much. It was the right thing to do. And then you had people like Nadal. We heard him earlier in the segment talking about what an amazing act of sportsmanship was. Novak Djokovic said it was a great gentleman gesture and sportsmanship. Like he took time out of his press conference. He had nothing to do with this match <laughs> to talk about how great it was. Nadal's PR manager said, I think he deserves the sportsmanship award for the next 10 years. Um, <laughs> they should just rename the sportsmanship award for you, Tim. So, is, yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> so, um, you know, you're obviously going to be modest about this, but what do you think about that range of you saying it was a totally normal thing and other people being like, nobody else would have done this. It was so crazy. Six, five in the fifth set. I just think it was uh, it was very black and white. It doesn't happen very often that that somebody uh, will yell out like in the middle of a serve. You know, uh, usually it's right before or that type of uh, really black and white situation doesn't happen very often. So I, I think um, you know more more people than than you might expect probably would have done the same thing. So you know it was very. Uh, kind and, and gracious of, of Rafa to say that and you know I appreciate it but you know he, he's he's one of the one of the great sportsmen of our uh, 
of our time. And uh, like I've said a couple of times, tennis has been really lucky to uh, to have him playing so well for so many years. You know, I think I think it, what's interesting to me about what happened is that it sort of reflects how even in a sport like tennis, where it's very much a gentle person's game and there is a sort of code, it's not like golf where it's written into the rules that you have to rat yourself out if you do something wrong. But you'd think that there would be more incidents like this in tennis. Um, I, I did some Googling and found, you know, a couple. There was an incident with Jimmy Connors and John Newcomb where Connors uh, double faulted a couple points in a row because there were three bad calls in a row that went against Newcomb. There was uh, an incident with Andy Roddick in 2005 uh, where he was up 5-3 in the second set of a quarterfinal. Ball was out. Line judge called it in. Roddick reversed it and actually went on and lost the match. To me, it reflects sort of the the policing of the sport is quite good. And that obviously with Hawkeye technology and the, so many officials on the court at big matches at, at Grand Slams, there isn't a lot of room for this sort of, of discrepancy. I mean, is it unusual when it comes up? Did you feel like, well, this is a weird moment? I didn't feel like it was a weird moment. I just thought that it was very black and white. There was, I mean... It was pretty clear to me what the right thing to do was, and, and you know, like you said, with with Hawkeye on the bigger courts these days, there really isn't any need to reverse somebody's call or something like that because you can usually just challenge. I will say that I think this sort of thing is probably uh, more prevalent than you think, but it just doesn't get talked about much because you know, it probably happens on the outer courts a little more often. Or maybe not in major tournaments, right? Right, right. So, you know, I think, like you said, tennis is is a gentleman's game, and, you know, hopefully it uh, it stays that way. So I saw a match at the City Open in D.C. where you played, um, Tam. I I did see some of your matches, but this was a match between um, Gerald Donaldson and Rajiv Ram. It was on an outer court, and Mm -hmm. Donaldson was upset that um, a serve got called out, and he didn't shake the umpire's hand at the end. He's a very young player, and it seemed like there was a lot of kind of inexperience coming on there. And, um, you know, just watching tennis over the years, you do see um, this might have been more prevalent back in the days of McEnroe or whatever, of players getting really upset at calls and players getting upset at each other. I mean, there was the Justine Anna. Serena Williams incident um, where Anna held up her hand and wouldn't give Serena a second chance at a first serve. I mean, the the thing that just even being a recreational tennis player playing in in matches, it can get very tense and intense out there. And the incentives are super, um, you know, strong, especially if somebody like trying to work their way up on the tour. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of pressure on people, so you can understand it going the other way. Yeah, um, adrenaline kind of overrides conscience, I think. Right, and so I think that's maybe why people were so impressed by what you did, because the incentives were so strong in the other direction. And I could have totally related, and you know, I can relate to somebody getting really upset at a call that they perceive to be out or they perceive to be wronged on the court, even when the call, you know, even even when they weren't. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess this was maybe a little different than a bad call or something like that. You know, uh, it wasn't somebody that just made a mistake or, or wasn't doing their job. It was literally just somebody in the stands who was being an idiot. And so you, you hate to see uh, a player have to pay for that. Really. So what is the relationship that you have with 
guys like Nadal, Djokovic, Federer. You've talked about Nadal being a great sportsman um, and being a nice guy in the locker room and not, you know, just being an elitist and only talking to the other top players. But you've played. You've only played like three top ten guys in your career. Um, so, do you feel like you're kind of a peer of his, um, or how do you feel like that relationships work? Relationship works with the top guys and then you know guys who are around 100 or top 50 or whatever yeah i don't know if i'd consider myself a, a peer of of theirs you know you, you see him around in the in the locker rooms and and um you know the, those guys are, are very friendly and they'll say hello and they're respectful and, and um but they live in a little different world than i do <laughs> <laughs> well, um, just... but uh, <laughs> Well, describe for us a little bit what it's like to be, you know, outside or around the top hundred in this sport. I mean, the you know, as as fans, you know, you see Nadal and Federer and Djokovic and Murray and and the guys that are making tens of millions of dollars, and you tend to dismiss everybody else as not being sort of a, a physical equal or a, an equal in the sport. And yet, you're like one of the top hundred best tennis players in the world, which is remarkable. And we should also say in those three matches against top 10 players, you've won at least one set in all three of those matches. So you're on, you can compete with, with these top guys. And yet the gulf in terms of how you are able to compete is enormous in the, the, the ways that you are able to train and what it costs you to do so and stay active in this tour. Uh, I looked up some numbers and since turning pro in 2005, you've made about $940,000, which might sound like a lot. You know, but for these guys, it's 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 a, a and also fraction divide, of a divide that by nine years. Divide that by nine years and factor in your factor in your travel and expenses. It's not like somebody's footing the bill for you. How does a a, a player at your level sort of a do it logistically and b keep the 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 mental will to go forward in what has to be a challenging approach to your career? Well, you know, I, I think I'd start by saying. You will see guys around 100 or, or around that ranking. Um, fairly often, they'll they'll play a real close match with um, you know with one of the top guys, and it it happens a lot. The the level of tennis that you know a, a guy around um, around my ranking, the level that we're capable of playing is very high, and I think that one of the big differences is that uh, the top guys do it all the time. They do it week in and week out. You know that has to be a goal of mine, and I'm, I'm sure you know other guys around my ranking is to play well um, more often, play well every week. One thing I will say is that I I think um, the the public and and people who watch tennis on TV, the casual fan, just kind of dismissing anybody that's not in the top ten, that <laughs> might fall on the uh, on the commentators' shoulders a little bit. I think um, you know there's been a lot of talk in the locker room and, you know, uh, among my peers about how um, kind of dismissive that some of these commentators are. Like last year, I think it was at the U.S. Open, there's a guy named uh, Diego Schwartzman who was playing uh, Djokovic. And Schwartzman's 60 in the world right now. He's a, he's a very good player. But the <laughs> the whole match, the commentators were just bad-mouthing him, talking about how he could play with a doubles partner and still not beat Djokovic and, and all this stuff. You know, you don't you don't see that in other sports. If you look at a, a guy ranked a hundred in the world in golf, the cameras will follow him around at a tournament, and, and uh, commentators will be singing his praises and talking about how 
you know, how good of a golfer he is. So I think that the general public believe what they hear when they're watching tennis. And I think uh, I've got a little bit of a bone to pick with some of these commentators who uh, get their laughs out of um, watching lower-ranked guys play against some of these top guys. Um, I think that's a really, great... Yeah, I think that's a great Which point. is really the only time that um, a lot of people will get to see them on TV because, you know, a guy like me, I, I'm not, I'm not going to play on Rod Laver Arena in a night session unless I'm playing, you know, one of the top guys. It's disappointing that uh, we don't get uh, some, some respect or, or some love from these commentators because they were players too, most of them, at one point. And uh, I think sometimes I forget that it's a, it's a big accomplishment to be where we are, and, and um, I think they forget that sometimes. So, so how do you keep it going mentally and financially? Financially, I'm doing fine. You know, I'm not I'm not making tens of millions of dollars a year, but you know, I, I'm making more money doing this uh, than I would be doing anything else right now. Otherwise, you know, I probably if I was losing money, I probably wouldn't keep playing. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I make enough, and and one thing you'll you'll see guys uh, around where I am do is I share a coach uh, and I share a uh, a physio that I travel with. So that you know that's one way to cut costs, but. I'm not eating ramen every night. <laughs> so um, you're going to play Dallas next? Yeah, that's right. And so, so what's your schedule coming up? You're gonna there's like an American uh, yeah, there's, a, there's an American swing. Uh, I'm going to Dallas, and then I'll do Memphis, uh, Delray. I'll go down to Acapulco, and then uh, Indian Wells and Miami. Awesome. And uh, final question for you: You're a Packers fan, right? Yes, sir. Um, you're from Milwaukee, so you know the catch that. Des Bryant made, sorry, the non-catch yeah. that Des Bryant made. Don't you think exactly. the Packers should have just said, you know what? That was a catch. <laughs> um, we all know it was a catch. Let's just give it to the guy. If it was, uh, they might have. Yeah, if, if it was a catch, they, they might have done that because, uh, you know, the Packers are a, a real uh, strong character team, so. It must not have been a catch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's good circular logic, Tim. Yeah, I like yeah. it. Thank you. Well, I think this falls into a category of this could be like a game show. What would Tim Smechek do? I think this should be you should be the you should be the the arbiter now of all things good in sports. For instance, I think we should ask you a couple of questions. What would Tim Smechek do? Six five, Wimbledon finals. You're trailing Roger Federer. It's He's, that's very important. It's Roger. It's Federer. Roger Federer. It's important that Roger Federer. His shoelace comes untied. He's about to serve. He doesn't notice it. What do you do? Do you tell him? Yeah, probably not. He's won. He's won enough Wimbledon. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that a one? That's that's the end of the game show. You won. I think. You won. Um, Thank, all right. you. Thank you. All right, Tim. Thank you uh, very much, and uh, good luck for the rest of the season. Thanks. For I just fe- I just felt like I was a tennis player at the at the end of uh, a tournament. There was like. Tim was great out there. Team was great out there. Good luck. Good luck for the rest of the season. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Take, take it easy. All right. Now it is time for After Balls. We got to honor Tim Smechak. He is from the town of Hales Corners, Wisconsin. I'm on the Hales Corners, Wisconsin website. It is lovely and historic. It's a little bit conceited of Hales Corners to describe itself that way. <laughs> Spell Hales for me. H-A-L-E-S. Named okay. after? Um, it's got a world-famous botanical gardens. It's got a nature center. Oh, it has ready access to the freeway system. Wow. <laughs> it's interconnected via the roads? 
It is. It's on the American uh, highway system. So you've got you to gotta live there. It seems like it's got uh, a lot of perks, Hales Corners, uh, named after someone. Uh, There's a lot of Lutheran references. There's the Hales Corner Lutheran School, Hales Corner Lutheran Church. <laughs> the Lutherans are strong in Hales Corners. All right. Uh, what is your Hales Corners is, Mike? Kim Fowley, who is a uh, great music eh, producer and just uh he was a hustler right and he worked with he worked with alice cooper and he worked with warren zevon and he died recently and he was given a great funeral and they remembered all the songs that kim fowley had a hand in songs that we all know like alley-oop which actually has a sports tie-in papa um mau mau yes he did that frank zappa he worked with and then you know he started working with like really good musicians who couldn't sell singles like Warren Zevon. But he worked with the Birds, and he specifically, uh, the group, the Birds, by the way, and he specifically worked with uh, their bassist, Skip Batten. One of their collaborations from the 1971 LP, Bird Maniacs, where neither bird nor maniacs are spelled right, one of their collaborations yielded this song. The song starts off, in case you didn't hear it, with the following words. One of America's great national pastimes is drinking a Coke, taking a smoke, telling a joke. I don't think you can really get away with uh, that sort of lyric in today's day and age. I don't think uh, Lil Wayne, if he said that, would be allowed on the stage, even at Bonnaroo, where they try to act very wide and open-minded. Then the song moves on to more specific baseball references. One of America's great national pastimes is the worship of speed, planting the seeds, taking more than she needs, cutting the grass, grabbing some ass, living too fast. This is the idea of when rock and roll meets baseball, what you get or what you got at one point. And though it is hailed as a novelty song, it's just, to me, a relic of the 1970s, or specifically 1971, where having a smoke can get lauded along with, alongside the other great national pastimes. Kim Fowley, who was uh, rightly hailed as a musical legend, writer, recording artist, and producer, also was very much behind America's great national pastime. I don't like that he doesn't really make a stand. <laughs> it's just, all those things. He just lists various things. They could be America's national pastime. Yeah, I mean, they're all things we do, but he kind of does elevate a few of them to the great national pastime, no? I guess so. I guess you're right. Yeah. Um, William Hale, first postmaster, just to answer your question about Hale's Corners. Uh, Stefan, what is your Hale's Corners? Well, with all the focus on the Patriots' balls, Josh, far too little attention is being paid to Marshawn Lynch's. The Seahawks running back was, as you know, fined $20,000 for grabbing his crotch after scoring a touchdown against Green Bay in the NFC Championship game. It was his second crotch grab fine of the season. So the NFL is putting the squeeze on Marshawn. If he fondles the boys during the Super Bowl, not only will he be fined, but the Seahawks will be flagged for unsportsmanlike conduct and penalized 
15 yards penalized to get it josh penalized the nfl apparently considers the act of grabbing one's genitalia to be an obscene gesture and in the modern context perhaps it can be viewed that way however the long history of the crotch grab yes the crotch grab does have a long history argues otherwise and it offers a tight defense for marshawn lynch should he choose to grab it. As Juliet Lapidos explained on Slade in 2008, the crotch grab dates back at least to pre-Christian Roman times when it was a defense mechanism against the evil eye. If someone shot a dude bad vibes, he blocked the kick by covering his genitals. Why the genitals? Obviously because they were the most important part of a man's body, the future fruit of his loins, as Lapidos writes. Post-Rome, men protected the fellas... Juliet says, not only to defend against direct malevolence, but also in the presence of anything ominous, like a funeral procession in ancient Rome and apparently Greece. The crotch grab had a legal role in court. Men swore an oath of honesty by grabbing their balls. Small digression. Contrary to some reports, the word testimony apparently does not derive from the word testes. Truth-telling ball grabbing was also a thing in biblical times. Allow me to read from Genesis. Abraham said to the senior servant in his household, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore. Fast forward a couple of millennia, and the testicular gesture has morphed from solemn oath to a celebration, equivalent to, say, flexing one's biceps, or a taunt, equivalent to raising the middle finger. I think of Sean Kemp simultaneously holding the rim and his balls after a particularly satisfying dunk, or the big balls dance popularized by fellow NBA player Sam Cassell to reflect his joy over a fine play. Josh, you might remember baseballer Jonathan Papelbon of the Phillies grabbing his crotch last year in response to fans who were booing the Philadelphia closer. As with the ancients, the genitalia in modern times exemplify the male source of life and hence power. Grabbing them is merely an assertive gesture that displays confidence and pride. In grabbing his balls after a touchdown, Marshawn Lynch is stating, I am strong, I am fertile. As such, the NFL should be celebrating Lynch, not finding him. He is asserting in the most historic way possible the strength and power of the sport of football. Just as Lynch asserts his dominion over an individual space, the end zone, the NFL asserts its dominion over American culture. What else is the Super Bowl but one giant crotch grab in every sense of the term? But if that totally rational academic line of argument fails to persuade Roger Goodell, here's what Marshawn Lynch should do this week. First of all, he should show up at his podium on Media Day in Arizona. He's got to show up. Then he should talk. He's got to talk. He should announce that his crotch grabbing was not some display of male virility, but rather part of the Feeling Nuts campaign that was a thing last fall. Josh, are you familiar with Feeling Nuts? Where are Feeling Nuts? Sounds like probably a testicular cancer thing. Yes! It was a Twitter hashtag <laughs> ice bucket challenge thing in which men grabbed their balls to raise awareness about testicular cancer. Hugh Jackman did it, William Shatner, Ricky Gervais. So Marshawn Lynch should say that he will match his fine money with a donation to testicular cancer research, and then he should urge every member of the Seahawks and Patriots to grab his balls during the game to support the cause, and he should call on the NFL to, rather than fine him, support testicular cancer research. Roger Goodell, he should say, needs to grab his balls and make a donation in support of cancer research. 
This is a genius PR solution for Marshawn <laughs> Lynch. You really covered uh, all the territory there. I did. Testicular and otherwise. Yes, I Thank did. Thank you, Stefan. You're welcome. Josh, what's your Hales Corners? I've been uh, spending a lot of time recently looking at old newspapers, as one does. And one thing you'll notice when you're looking at a paper from like 100 years ago is that there was a lot of news back then. They would pack like 30 stories onto a single page. If, if Myth- Mrs. Smith was in a car accident, the Tribune, Gazette, whatever, was on the case. Um, but another thing you'll notice is that the news was really weird back then. It's often unclear to me when I'm reading a really old news story whether the writer is being sarcastic or just old-timey. For example, I ran across this article from the June 13th, 1892 edition of the San Francisco Call. I've been using the site newspapers.com. You can search like back to the 1700s. Sometimes when you're putting in search terms, just uh, weird stuff comes up. So this was ostensibly a game story about a California League baseball game in which the San Francisco Metropolitans beat the Oakland Colonels two to nothing. But here is the lead of the story. This is from 1892. Immediately after yesterday's game, Oakland lost, score two to zero, a pale, sparsely settled young man with an inexpressibly sweet, sad face on which reposed a glad, free, rock of ages cleft for me expression approached the baseball editor of this paper and in low yet firm, excuse me, but I never indulge accents, said he was about to emit a scheme which he thought of himself. Okay, so what what was the scheme that this pale, sparsely settled young man emitted? I'm, I'm glad you asked. I have the answer. Uh, the scheme was to put on a game between drinkers and non-drinkers. <laughs> so for fans of past afterballs, this was sort of like a game between players with one arm and players with one leg, except substitute and drinkers and non-drinkers. The story continues. In proof of this assertion, he exposed a badge on the lapel of his vest. It was a small gold circle with a blue enameled face on which were inscribed letters B, C of G. The young man did not explain these symbols, but they are understood to mean boozers cured of guzzling. He further stated that this was the insignia of a vast organization known as the Federation of Reformed Dipsomaniacs of the United States, one of which he was whom the Dipsomaniacs, not the United States. This boozer cured of guzzling goes on to say that the names of the two teams in this, expl- in this game, this exhibition, would be the bichlorides and the gym jams. Bichloride of gold was a treatment for alcoholism that one eventually revealed to be quackery, while Jim Jams was a slang term for delirium trimmings. The OED has a citation from 1885, I'll die on the flags with the Jim Jams before I'll wet my lips with it again. So naturally, bichlorides v. Jim Jams. Um, The story continues. In the matter of players, the young man declared that he could easily drum up a team of bichlorides, while the city prison tanks where a high order of Jim Jam talent is always on tap, would supply the opposing nine. All right, what would this game look like? As the young man proceeded, he grew quite enthusiastic and unfolded a few brief outlines. In order that nothing in the way of pleasing effect should be lost on the spectator, it was his intention, he said, to have the uniforms and other paraphernalia harmonized with the players in their condition. For instance... The bichlorides will be clad in spotless white 
which is emblematical of their purity, with BC of G emblazoned in letters of gold on the breast. The Jim Jams are to wear the lurid garb of Mephistopheles, trimmed with beads of sulfur and bespangled with the crystallized tears of widows and orphans and heartbroken creditors. For balls, they are to use demon's eyes, bloodshot, and covered with perforated snake hide, and will bat the same with beer bottles and bung starters. There will also be several other unique and startling features which the young man had not thought of yet, but was preparing to think of. Uh, What will the likely outcome be of this game? It is more than likely, the young man thought, that the clear eye, the steady brain, and hand of the bichloride will be easily offset by the cheerful celerity with which a Jim Jam will flit from bag to bag with a phantom horde of hobos and pink-eared bullfrogs with whiskers hard upon his heels. (laughs) Such, in brief, is the scheme of the young man, who from native modesty wishes his name withheld for the present, but he says the game will surely take place if he can get the grounds. All right, you may remember that this is ostensibly a game story about a real baseball game that happened in real life. And indeed, at this point, after all of that setup that I just read, the writer, and there's no byline to identify him, does describe the game, which is entirely unrelated to the concept that is unspooled in the first billion words of the story. In the real game, Fred Carroll played right field, where luckily for his lame finger, he was offered no chance. Also, Charlie Sweeney has been released, and there is some talk of letting Whitehead go, but for what reason is not clear. Uh, There is a whole lot about this that is not clear. I could not find any evidence that there was ever a game between bichlorides and gym jams. The whole thing really seems like a goof, but I have no idea why, what the point of the story is, or what is going on here. If you have any bichloride or gym jam-related knowledge, please do pass it along. Hang up at slate.com for your, but this is for your such gym a, jam news. This is such a rich territory for you. Old-time baseball games between two distinct types of people, right? The free-soil Democrats against <laughs> the mugwumps. Those Christians who believed in the transubstantiation of the Eucharist and those who didn't. Like, I feel like there's a baseline of all old newspaper stories are, being amu- are amusing. But this is just like the balls are covered with perforated snake hide. And and <laughs> the they're tears. also beads of sulfur and bespangled with crystallized tears of widows and orphans. Like that, whatever your bar is for old timey weirdness, this yeah. I feel like has to or, exceed it. It's just some good sports writing. <laughs> well, I think that the old timiness of it, and I'm a little against old timiness, but if ever anything demanded that we uh, look at the world in sepia tones and wear a handlebar mustache. It's this story. The bee, the bee before something, the bee strided and the bee spoke and the bee tiered. There was a lot of bee writing back then. I like that. I want to bring that back and be sodded with it. All right. Bee, love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll gather links to the stories we discussed, slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe in iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash podcasts. Leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash listen. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.